So, um, last night we had our event called Grace and Grieving. Um, let me give you a prequel to this. There are a couple of videos online, three of them. Two of them are an uh, interview with Paul and I chatting through some of the stuff that we were supposed to talk about last night. And so you need to see those two. It's under the playlist of Still Growing in Grace, uh, the radio show that was going on. Uh, and then there was another half hour one with Brad Jerzak, good friend of Paul's. And uh, that one's really good too. Last night, uh, I'm right now editing and, and creating a new file to upload and I'll send that out to everybody that was at the event and that registered and it'll be on my Facebook page, you'll all see it. But if you're not on there, uh, if you registered, you'll get an email with the new links to last night's content. And my hope is today we will continue because there's still more uh, that needs to be shared. And I'm not sitting up here with Paul. Um, he's going to come and just share his heart. Um, yeah, see? Much love. Much love. You got 10 minutes. <laughs> so uh, let's, let's get Paul up here now. Paul, just come share. Thank you for making the time and effort to come Absolutely. to Canada. Come Thanks, Michael. Uh, just knocked my head set off. All right, okay. Oh, we're going to have fun this morning, let me tell you. I, got, I, I started this morning, um, I went downstairs for breakfast, and it got into a conversation that just kind of lit me up. And I got here, got into a conversation that was even... Push me further, so look out, who knows what. But I want to start with, um, of course, a poem. And um, it's one of my, my friend David Tenson's poems. And, uh, and, then, and then I'm going to tell you three stories, one from a couple days ago, one from t today, and one from a couple weeks ago. And, uh, and we'll see how... I'll, I told, I, some of you were there with the other night when I said that I have this game that I play with the Holy Spirit where it's like, I'm going to go down this rabbit hole, see if you can find me. <laughs> Problem was, she always goes with me. And, uh, and it's like, how do we get out of here? Oh, I'm going to have to trust you, I guess. So um, I also have this little thing that, that is between me and the Holy Spirit where when an amazing thing happens, which is al almost all the time, <laughs> I have, it took me so long to be a child that I stored up all the wonder that I had ignored as a child, you know, and it was, so I, I'm constantly in a state of wonder about stuff. So things just tickle me, you no, know? like singing Lying in the Lamb, which is one of the things that I wanted to talk about a little bit. And, um, and then, um, so, so when, I, when these things happen, I always have this expression that I say to the Holy Spirit. I'll, I'll just go like, that was incredible. Or that's amazing. And I, I always hear the whisper of the Holy Spirit. And it's like this. Ah, oh, whatever. <laughs> and if you know my whole story, you know how redemptive that is. Because when I went through... The, the really dark times, and Kim was so angry at me for like 11 years, and um, that when I was trying to work on my stuff, and she had no reason to believe that any change was actually happening, when I would tell her what I was working on, she would say, yeah, right, whatever, right? Which, uh, I finally got to the place where I, I realized that there was no way to control her, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Took a long time. I'm I'm still learning some of that. You know, have you ever been in have you ever been in this situation, guys, where your wife says to you, "Do you know when I'm telling you this? I'm not asking for advice." <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Good. That's like, this is how I process. If I want your advice, I will actually ask for it. But see, I want to give her advice so that I can feel better about myself. That is. When she is emotionally, verbally processing something, I'm sure that it's aimed in my direction. Even if it's not, because that's, that's the kind of shame history that I have, right? You raise your voice, I know I'm wrong. And, uh, and, and I'm, I'm way down the road healed in that thing. Um, I can still get triggered once in a while, but, but uh, it took me a long time to go like, yeah, she'll ask me. 
if she, if she actually wants my input. She hardly ever asks me. <laughs> so we're going to go down some rabbit trails, and we'll see, um, see how, they, how they come together. And it ties into some things from last night, picks up some loose ends a bit. And, uh, but here's the poem. I have so much to say, so many words, a lifetime of my own and a millennia of others. Yet, as I utter and draw conclusions, I draw a box and put you in it. And with religious zeal, I've defended that box, forgetting I placed eternity in there. With past poets and prophets, I struggle to define you, not wanting to confine you, but still compelled, compelled to express the beauty and wonder you are and never cease to be, compelled to give witness by weaving words with 26 letters, strokes, and spaces. Perhaps like lovers stare, silence says more, and frees you to speak and define the edges, the edges, the edges of the box you are beyond, the edges of the cosmos as it expands in you, the edges of my inner world with its rocky refusal to accept the shameful parts that grace has defined as acceptable. Oh, Yahweh, how patient you are with your own children as we learn to be loved beyond comprehension, imagination, or interpretation of you. It's called the paradox of definition. And one more that'll feed into this at some point. It's called Until You Forgive. You can't cross over until you've been crossed and have to forgive to stay grounded. You can't move on until you've been floored and have to forgive to keep going. You can't make it work until you've screwed up and have to forgive to fix it. You can't soldier on until you've been in the wars and have to forgive to find peace. You can't be yourself until you've faced your shadow and have to forgive to, to be whole. Hmm. The process and the journey, eh? So, so let's see. Story from a few weeks ago. Story from couple days ago and a story from this morning. Um, <clears throat> I'm, always, uh, I'm always incredibly grateful when I run into someone um, who starts telling me their story. And uh, it's courageous and vulnerable, right? And uh, especially when they're telling me about the ways that are not working, that have failed. And, um, and that happened this morning. And when I, when I dare to talk about this kind of story, it's never with the intention to hurt or humiliate, right? And I, and I have to have an internal sense that it, I have permission to do this. And, um, but I knew that inside this story, this would... This would bleed into whatever the Holy Spirit wants to say this morning. And um, so here's, here's the scenario. Imagine you've been married for a lot of years, and then you get a divorce. And in that divorce, you lose one of your children to it. And you go through a process of forgiveness. But your child is, say, 11 years old at the time. And the relationship is cut off, not only from the person you were once married to, but also from the child that you love with all your heart. And then years later, your spouse has remarried, and then their spouse has passed away. Your replacement. Eh? And then you get a phone call, and your ex says, 
see if I can remember the phrase. Well, hey there, something like that. I'm in the area. I would like to get together. And you say, no. Not realizing that the son you haven't seen is with your ex. And the question is, did I make a mistake? And there's these elements of regret, all right? Story. There's a lot connected to that story that, that we want to explore. And thank you to the vulnerable, courageous person who asked the question. So a couple days ago, I get an email from a friend who says, I have been teaching for a lot of years, and there's a young man who I taught years ago who became a warrior in the special forces. And I know his family really well. And now he is, he is out of the bloodshed. And he, who was a man's man, he is going through gender transformation. He's becoming a woman. And his parents have no idea how to relate to it. And I'm wondering how to relate to it. And what do we do? Story from a few weeks ago. And I will, I like the, the Bible word better, but I won't use it because people are sensitive to it. So I'll use the word poop. <laughs> Bible word is much more. I think it's a much better word, but. The Greek word is skubala, if that helps, but, um, but uh, I never know kind of in what environment I can say shit, but, but, <laughs> but it's in the Bible. So <clears throat> we're in the final stages of building this house, and for the first time in our lives, we built a house, and it'll be the house we die in, I'm pretty sure. I was born in Grand Prairie, Alberta. I'm going to die in Brush Prairie, Washington. You know, we've gone down. And uh, from something grand to something in the brush, you know. And uh, <clears throat> um, so um, our general contractor is a really good friend of ours. And he's been unbelievably great in the whole journey. A lot of people have horror stories about building things. And um, Kim designed the place and all this stuff. It was great. And my friend comes to me and he says, I need to go to lunch with you. And he's a very hands-on, you know, brilliant contractor and what he does and he's really good at working with subs and all that kind of stuff and uh, we've known him for years and years and uh, so uh, sure we, so we go to lunch and and he says I'm really irritated at my wife and I'm kind of stuck about it and um, I say well what's going on and he says she bought a dog. You know, so you know this is a life or death situation right off the bat, right? She bought a dog. And I said, really? I thought, I thought you liked dogs. Well, he says, well, yeah, I do. We had a dog for years. It was like, in fact, one of the most greatest moments of grief in my life is when we had to put him down. He said, and then... And then, so, you know, a couple of years later, she started talking about getting a dog. And, and I was going like, no, I don't want a dog. And so, but, you know, she kept bringing it up once in a while, once in a while, once in a while. And so, finally, you know, I had this, this nudge and to surprise her, I think on her birthday or whatever, I went and bought her a dog. I said, you bought the dog? He goes, yeah, I, I bought the dog, but, you know, because I knew she wanted the dog. But now, I'm the one that has to take care of it, right? And so, I'm the one that has to pick up all the piles of poop, right? All this dog poop. And, and um, you know, I've, I'm feeding the dog and, and, and all this. 
and it's really driving me nuts. I said, let me get this right. She wanted a dog, you said no, but finally you did it to surprise her and now you're mad at her about that. Well, he says, yeah, I can see that point. <laughs> and I said, you know what? Here's part of the problem. And this goes back to a phrase that I've used a lot. And anybody that's heard me speak knows that it's one of those places that I'm, I'm in and will be for the rest of eternity. And that is, uh, in fact, I'm working on a book about it right now. It's called The Art of Living in One Day's Grace. I said, you, you don't know how to live in one day's grace. So what you're doing, and, uh, and you haven't forgiven yourself for buying this dog, you know, um, and you haven't forgiven her for wanting the dog. And so, so when, when you're coming to today's pile of poop, right? It's not just a little pile of poop. It's every pile of poop you've ever had to pick up. And not only that, it's the hell of every pile of poop that is in your eternal future. <laughs> right? And you are loading that pile of poop with everything in the past and everything in the future, right? So it is a huge pile of poop, this one that's right in front of you today, right? Because you haven't been able to let go of this. You haven't even seen your own complicity in that whole process. You haven't stayed silent long enough to understand what's going on. And now you are future tripping poop into the inevitable future. <laughs> Right? You have an imagination that this is, this is now your life. You're going to be 80 years old going out there having to pick up piles of poop. And he just laughed because it was so obvious, right? Because, because he hadn't been, hasn't been able to just stay inside today's grace with enough grace to pick up today's pile of poop if that's what's in front of him. He's dragging everything from the past and projecting everything in the, the, from the past also into the future. That is part of the power of unforgiveness. Right? You have an issue in the past. You have a hurt that you continue to carry with you. And I've often described unforgiveness as a corpse that you now carry on your back. It's the corpse of a memory. You lock that memory and that person in it, and then you attach it to yourself, and then you carry it with you. Part of the problem is if you do that long enough, you don't know who you are apart from that loss. And that's one of the greatest devastations of unforgiveness. Unforgiveness is is a poison that then begins to leak into all of your other relationships. Right? And, and it's like a coat. It stinks, yeah. It has, it's full of decay and death, but it is comforting when it's the only thing that you have that keeps you warm. Right? And so a lot of us got stuck. And we need to understand that forgiveness is for the sake of the victim. It's not for the sake of the perpetrator. Forgiveness is for the sake of the victim. It is to free you from the prison that you carry around, right? And it's like, but if I let that go, it's not fair and justice won't be done. And that's part of why we hold on to it. And partly, and I don't know if you've met people, and there's a phrase for them. They're called inside-out people. The first time you meet them, they will tell you how they've, how they've been hurt. That's, that's their presentation of who they are, is how they've been damaged, right? And people who are stuck inside of unforgiveness and bitterness. And, and I'm not saying that you don't have to get the inside world out and expose it so that it can be healed. But part of the process of forgiveness is exactly to do that. To be able to name, this is what hurt me. And a lot of counseling is exactly that. It's allowing the corpse to be exposed 
so that we can give it a proper burial. And then we can move on. We can work through the grief of the loss because there's always grief involved that's also, you know, repressed inside of that memory. And so did, did my friend this morning, did she make a mistake? Probably. Welcome to the human race. Did she say no out of what? She said no out of a history rather than presence. And she projected, these are, I, I, I get this, she, I've done this a million times. She projected not just the memory of that hurt, but the hurt that she's now trying to protect herself from in an imagination of what will happen if she exposes herself. Does that make sense? Okay. Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. <laughs> I'm supposed to be going down some road somewhere. I just... <laughs> for those of you on live stream, I'm very sensitive to the spirit and GPS. So that's hilarious. That's one of the first times that's ever happened. That's great. It'll become a story, trust me. So, okay, so, but, but to say I made a mistake is okay, right? Because what we want to do is, is we as human beings, we're so afraid to be embarrassed. We're so afraid to be humiliated. We're so afraid to acknowledge we made a mistake. And now we're going to get stuck inside of that. We either have to justify it or it becomes part of our shame. Right? It, it becomes part of the whisper of, see, you're just, you do dumb things. That, that's a whisper of accusation. And I'm saying, don't do that. Look, you're like the rest of us. You're dragging along some things from our history, and then when something happens right in front of you, you're responding with all that and all that baggage. Right? God. We expect one more here very shortly. <laughs> I, I like to tell this story. I was in, um, I, Kim and I and our kids were, our kids were raised in a little town called Boring, Oregon. Yeah? Home of the Boring Baptist Church. <laughs> Sometimes there is truth in advertising. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so, um, they did change their name eventually. I don't know why. It's just like, I thought that was such a great name. So, um, so uh, we lived in, in Boring, and it was B-O-R-I-N-G. I loved saying I was from Boring, Oregon. And, um, and, and we had this uh, wedding that was at the Episcopal Church and that we were invited to. And so I'm sitting there. And this, in Oregon, which is fairly liberal state. You don't have a, a lot of traditional weddings. Like, you know, uh, for me, a traditional wedding is one where they do all the normal pomp and circumstance stuff, including this little time during the ceremony where they say, if anyone has any reason why the, you, that you know that these two should not be married, speak now or forever hold your peace. And then there's this really awkward silence, you know, because everybody's going like, should I say something or not? You know, and... <laughs> When you do that in Oregon, I mean, you could be there for a couple hours, you know, <laughs> like, oh, yeah, I, I got three reasons, you know, and um, so, but this was a traditional wedding, and, and they had this moment of silence, in this awkward moment of silence, and, and not only does my phone go off, it goes straight to speaker, <laughs> and one of Kim's not quiet sisters in a booming voice says, hey, Paul, are you still in that silly wedding or what? <laughs> and she said my name. I couldn't go, Nicholas, turn your phone off. <laughs> so phones going off to me is just funny. I think it's great. So all, everybody turn their phone on. We'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah. So this issue of forgiveness. You know, it's, it is in your power to forgive. It really is. Um, remember, uh, Peter, Peter, Peter's so great. So how many times do we have to do this? Like seven? 
<laughs> seven, right? Like, I mean, he's really pushing himself. I have to forgive. I'm just waiting for the eighth time. I'm going to, you know, and uh, <laughs> seven. And Jesus goes, 70 times seven. And I'm not sure if Peter realized what Jesus did or not. And most of us don't. When, when Jesus turned seven into 70 times seven, he's quoting Genesis. There was, there was the song of Lamech. Lamech was the first really bad dude after Cain. It's like five generations after Cain. Lamech was just, he was not a nice guy. I thought of a whole bunch of different words, but I can't use any of them. And, and um, he was just not a nice guy. And Lamech, uh, by the time you get to Lamech, and he's in the line of Cain, um, there's this sword song of Lamech, which is his, his song in the face of God. That's what it is. And Lamech is, um, he's the first one that starts polygamy. He begins to take other women. He's the first one who names his daughters after their looks. He begins to externalize value in terms of appearance. And we are still under that inheritance. Yeah? And, and Lamech says in his sword song, if Cain is avenged seven times, I will be avenged 70 times seven. Yeah. So when, when Peter goes, how many times do I have to forgive? Seven? If I can be avenged seven times? You know, if I have to do this seven times? Jesus turns around and says, 70 times seven. So he reverses the curse of Lamech from Genesis forever. Right? He... And, and I mean, it's just part of the conversation. And Peter's response to it is, well, that's impossible. <laughs> and Jesus says, if you have faith the size of a almost invisible seed, a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain of unforgiveness, be picked up, moved, and cast into the sea and it will happen. He's saying, you have the power to forgive. You can say, I am done with this corpse. And the intent of it is not to change the person who hurt you. And it's not to deny the hurt that happened. But it's to bring it to a place where it can be buried in a proper funeral. And free yourself. Free yourself. And you have the power to do that. If you are waiting to forgive someone and free yourself, if you're waiting for them to change so that you can do that, good luck with that. Some of them are dead. Some of them, almost all of them, don't care. They don't care. Is that fair? No, not fair. That's not the point. The point is, you're in prison. And you know what? In a sense, they didn't put you there. It's your response to what they did that has put you there. And now you put a, a label on your prison bar, and it says, home. And then you create an identity. This is the house that I live in. And it's built from pain and loss. The power of unforgiveness. You know, in, in the movie and in the book, you never see the perpetrator's face. Why? Because you don't need a face for forgiveness. There are people who hurt you, you never saw their faces. Right? You have the power to forgive. Problem is that, that my people, modern evangelicals, we confused forgiveness and reconciliation. And it created huge problems. We thought, well, if you really forgive someone, you've got to have good thoughts about what they did, or you have to, you have to now trust them, or you have to now invite them into your world as evidence that you forgave them. No, you don't. Forgiveness 
is to let go of their throat so that you can have your hands open for other things. Reconciliation is the rebuilding of trust. That's a different journey completely. The rebuilding of trust requires certain things, and one of them is you have to have a face. All right? To rebuild trust, there has to be a face-to-face. And reconciliation is not for the sake of the victim. It's for the sake of the perpetrator. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That's not for God's sake. That's for the sake of the cosmos. Not counting their brokenness against them. Reconciliation. The beautiful thing about Jesus, one of, one of the billion, bazillion, bazillion, infinite beautiful things about Jesus is that Jesus is fully human and you have fully human and, and fully God. Jesus becomes sin for us. All that brokenness and the reconciliation happens inside that relationship and we got included into it. Stunning. In human relationships, reconciliation, the rebuilding of trust means that that you can forgive someone and never trust them again. If you don't understand the distinction, you will drop legitimate boundaries that protect because you think that forgiveness means that you've got to be able to trust them as evidence of the forgiveness. Do you understand what I'm saying? And, but at the same time, let me also tell you that God is a God of reconciliation. So he's going to be, because he does not exclude anybody. In the movie, it's so powerful, that one scene where they stop on the, on the way up and Mackenzie's beginning to realize where they're headed. And it's like, you want me to forgive him? And Papa says, he's my son too. And you're going like, I don't want him to be your son too. I just don't, you know? Look what he did. And it's just this cataclysmic clash uh, between my hurt and the love of God. And it's, and it's like, this is not fair. You know what? It's not fair. It's never fair. You know, the things that I can then, if I stand back and turn around and the hurt that I've caused, not fair. The cost that I've been in people's lives, not fair. But a lot of times when we are just focused on the, the losses in our own life caused by someone or something else, all we see is what's not fair to us. And so reconciliation, the rebuilding of trust, requires that the person who is the perpetrator own what they've done. If they don't get to the place where they've owned what they've done, you can't be a, rebuild trust. It's got to come from the side of the perpetrator. Right? Perpetrator never has a right to force reconciliation on a victim. Can't. Can't give the victim a timetable. Can't, give, can't, give, can't even create an expectation. Not, not their right. And they, they need to own their stuff not for the sake of reconciliation, but for the sake of their own healing. It's part of exposure. So when you've hurt someone, one of the things that has to happen is you've got to own it. And one of the best ways to stop resisting owning your stuff is to stop judging. Stop seeing people according to the flesh, even yourself. We'll get to that in a minute. Process of reconciliation also involves asking for forgiveness and confession. Confession is just telling the truth. It's not, we're not talking about apology here. Apologizing is acknowledging that you've done something, but you don't have to own it even when you apologize because you still keep the power. Well, I'm sorry, so now you're supposed to be okay. Right? I did my part. Right? I'm sorry. That's, that's not asking for forgiveness. That's maybe acknowledging that you got caught. You're not even answering the question, so what are you, what are you sorry about? For what exactly? You know? Because when you say, 
will you please forgive me? Suddenly, the power has shifted from you to the other. And now you've humbled yourself. Will you please forgive me? And when, when you ask that question, you have to be open for every question that follows. So what am I forgiving you for? What are you asking forgiveness for? What did you do? Do you understand what you did? Let me tell you what you did. Let me tell you how it has rippled into my world. I met a, a woman in, um, in uh, Mississippi, and uh, she was a, um, a flight nurse in the military in Afghanistan. And she purposefully picked um, flights that were going into the most likely to be shot down places. She would choose the flights that nobody else would volunteer for, and she would volunteer for them, hoping that she would be shot down at some point. And the reason was, is that part of the reason she'd become a nurse was to offset the incredible depth of shame when as a little girl through her whole childhood and into her early teens, she was almost daily uh, molested by her father and as she called him, my father's brother, her uncle. And it was, it had created such a level of shame. She had always had this suicidal ideation and but she'd become a nurse because a lot of time, a lot of times, uh, not, not, not all the time, but there are many situations where people move into, you know, there's a lot of therapists who have come out of brokenness. And, and frankly, um, wounded healers are amongst the best healers. But, but it's, it's opened up a pathway but until they get to the place where they've resolved their own stuff, a lot of it is just like, I need to do something that at least is good in order to keep me alive and, not, and keep the shame at bay, right? So you have this conflict going on. Well, in Afghanistan, somebody gives her a copy of the shack and she reads it and she gets to the issue of forgiveness and it just takes her apart and at the same time, she gets a call from the States, and it's her family, and they say, Dad is dying, and uh, since you're the nurse in the family, we think you should come home and take care of him um, in his passing. And she, having just read this and worked through it, sees this now as an opportunity to maybe take some steps in this direction. And with great fear and trepidation, she gets permission to come stateside. And by the time she gets to, his, to the hospital, he is in a coma. And uh, <clears throat> a lot of times when somebody is in the process of dying, they will drop into a coma, but then oftentimes they will come out um, just before they actually pass. That's not unusual. And so she knows that. And she, there's a scale, there's different scales in terms of how deep the coma is. And, um, and so she's watching that scale to see, because she wants this conversation with her father. But he keeps dropping deeper and deeper and deeper into the coma. And she realizes at one point, he's not coming out. But she still wants the conversation. So she pulls up a chair, it's like two o'clock in the morning. She pulls up a chair next to his bed, takes his hand, and she says to him, Dad? I'm here to ask forgiveness for both of us. Let me tell you what you did to me. And she begins to go through the long litany of damage. And I'm sorry, my phone's on. <laughs> there you go. And um, she starts going down this list and starts telling him, you know what? The reason I've never been able to trust a man is because of what you did. The reason that I've, I've never been able to consider the damage that's even in my own body, you did that to me. I mean, and sh the reason that, that I've had to deal with um, a split inside me is because of this and, and disassociative 
uh, disorders and all of this. And she is going down and saying, Dad, you did this to me. And she goes through her whole list and then she starts over and names every one of them. And she says, Dad, for this, for the fact that I've never been able to be married, I forgive you. I let you go. And she's, she's into her list saying, and I forgive you, and I forgive you. And she's into the list. And she said, Paul, I'm, I'm holding his hand and telling him this. And suddenly tears come pouring down his face. And it's not little trickle. He is weeping and he never comes out of the coma. And she says, there's nobody on the planet that could ever convince me that major things were not transacted during that night. And then he passed. The power of forgiveness. Forgiveness is for your sake when you've been hurt. Reconciliation. And we have a God of reconciliation. I was telling some folks, I don't know if it was public on the stage or not, in the last few days about my friends on death row who built in their, there's 56 guys on death row in unit two at Riverbend Penitentiary in Nashville. And they're my, fr they're my friends, some of them very, very good friends. And, um, and they are, um, um, they built a table of reconciliation that sits in their library. And one of their things that they, they have decided as a community um, of men who are, who could at any time get the little notice that tells them the date of their death. That if they have an issue with each other at any point, they will meet at the table of reconciliation and they have promised each other they won't leave the table until it's been dealt with. And I think, boy, we need one of those like in every home, in every church, in every, you know, every political office, you know, every business office, you know, it's just like, a table of reconciliation. But it means that you own your stuff, where you acknowledge what you've done. And let me tell you, that's hellfire. I mean, that is a painful process to be exposed, which also exposes every sense of shame that you have with regard to it. And to have that purged from your system. And it's not just an event. Forgiveness is not just an event. My friend, um, um, who lost her connection with her son because of the loss of relationship, has been in a process, process, I have to remember. And uh, she's been in a process for a long time. And when she got that call, it was an invitation into the next part of the process. And in that moment, she wasn't able to make it. She wasn't able to take that risk. And I... I get that. There is no shame in that whatsoever. Whatsoever. But then the Holy Spirit has been nagging her about that. And the question, did I make a mistake, is a question sponsored by the Holy Spirit to say, yeah. So the question she could ask is, did you know I would make this mistake? And the answer is, of course. Why do you think I nudged you in that direction? <laughs> because if you don't make mistakes, you're not going to learn anything, right? But just because, of, because you made a mistake, don't allow that mistake now to become the whisper of shame that adds to the litany of shame from which you've been hurt. Don't carry all that dog poop with you when you're inside the grace of what's actually in front of you. Because on that day, yes, I think you made a mistake. All right. Forgive yourself. That's a hard one. Right? And that's what I was talking about last night in terms of regret. I've learned to live with regret as part of grieving and not part of shame. It's to say... Crap, I made a mistake. But you know, having made that mistake is not the end of the universe. Shame tells you, see? You're just a person who makes mistakes. That's who you are. And it's like, no. 
I acknowledge it. I own the mistake that I made. I understand it. I know I drug it to the place where I now made that choice. I carried it with me. All of those little piles of dog poop I brought with me and I placed it on this event. And then I not only did that, but I created an imagination of if I said yes, all of that pain is going to come rushing back. I'm going to be vulnerable. I don't know what this means. And she didn't even know that her son was on the line. So when she finds out, then that whispers, boy, that was a mistake that will never be resolved. Because you've projected that now, right? You created your mistake, and now it's projected into the inevitable future where nothing, God no longer exists, because when we future trip, we don't, we don't take God with us, right? So in those imaginations, we're alone. I'm now living in a, a little room. I've never been able to talk to my son. He's, I mean, do you understand how powerful our imaginations are? And you know that your body physiologically does not make a distinction between what you imagine and what's actually real? You respond to that and you feel it. It's like, no, it's okay, it's okay. And then it says, in the midst of this situation now, let another layer of that go, let it go. Get your hand off his throat. Because guess what? He is not who he was. And he, he is not who you think he is now in your imagination. You actually don't know of all these years what has transpired in his own heart. You know, sometimes when you meet somebody who's hurt you years later, it's a huge disappointment because they're not the person you thought they were. And you're sort of confronted by your need to hold on to that damage to justify your fury. You follow? And it's like, they're not, it's not fair that they changed, right? I locked them in a picture and in a box, and it's like, it's very disruptive that you've actually changed. <laughs> you know, how do I know who I am if you didn't stay in the box? Sounds like our relationship with God, yeah? And, and, and it's, that's part of the beauty of life that we are constantly woven into circumstances and situations that, that give you an opportunity to stop and pay attention to what's happening in your own body, what's going on, and what you're bringing to the table. You understand there's no formula to this because you're too incredibly crafted for a formula. But there is a God who is inside of your world moving you in the direction of freedom and goodness and, and, and openness and healing. And yes, there are losses that are absolutely not fair. People hurt us. Right now there are not very many, three, people in my life that I, I just don't trust. I've forgiven them, betrayed by them, don't trust. And so I've got really good boundaries. And, and so it's like, but I know that I'm indwelt by a God of reconciliation. But as I've, as I've related to those people, the Holy Spirit has been very clear to me up till today that I'm not the one to initiate reconciliation. Because if I initiate reconciliation in these cases, and, these, and this is just me and my situation, it will not allow them to own what they've done. but I know they're changing and I, I can bless them. I can pray for them. I can ask, you know, I want their freedom. You know, I want their freedom to be my revenge. Oh, let me see if I can quickly find something. Boy, that sparked a thought. I love that when that happens. 
Oh, let, let me read. I, I was sharing this this morning. This is from this morning when I got up this morning. I was thinking about this conversation. And, and see if this makes sense to you. Regret will visit. You, you can't live in a world where regret will no longer visit you. Regret will visit. To not allow it to become part of grieving is to not forgive yourself. When it comes, I don't know what the deal is about getting older, but my memory about stuff in the past is getting so much more clearer. Now, what's actually in front of me, I kind of lose track of, but, <laughs> but it's kind of a crazy thing. And so I'm, I'm like constantly being given an opportunity to grieve deeper layers of what happened to me and what I perpetrated. Yeah? And so there's this constant, not constant, in the sense that it's an attending presence of going like, boom, the memory comes back, right? And it's like, okay, what do I do with it? And a lot of us, we just want to cast it out, right? It's like, no. With Jesus, go into it and grieve. Let yourself grieve. Let it pass through. To let regret become an accusation is evidence that you have not forgiven yourself. That's not what I was looking for, but I thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> Let me see if I can find this. I so want to read this to you. You know, there were, you know when they freed the um, uh, concentration camps um, in Germany? And um, they found stuff that had been scrawled on little notes and things like that by the concentration camp prisoners. And, um, and I, don't, I, w I don't want to try to tell you what this, oh, I know how to find it. Look in the search. Okay, I'm going to try to tell you a little bit about what it is, but I'm, I wish I could actually read it to you. And, um, but they found this little note, and it says, it, it's, it's written on this, scrawled on, hand-scrawled on this little piece of paper that they found in one of the largest death camps in Germany. And um, it ends with the line, and it says, we also, uh, we pray forgiveness for those who did such damage in our lives, who, you know, the camp guards and everything else. And it says, we ask for their forgiveness because of their actions that created an unbelievable community of love. It allowed us to deal with our own things. And it starts this litany of beautiful things that were redeemed in the midst of this incredible loss. And it says, so when they come face to face with you in judgment, please allow our healing that they participated in to be their judgment. You follow? They're acknowledging, they're not justifying what they did but they're acknowledging that God climbed in loss and suffering, almost like God could do something inside of the devastation of a cross, for example. But they recognized, let the healing that happened, even as a result of the perverted activities that they were engaged in, let our healing be their forgiveness. And you're just like, I want to be that. That's, that's a free person under the coercion of a concentration camp and a death sentence who can look around and say, those losses that were perpetrated on us that are unjustifiable have rippled into our lives beauty and layers of authenticity and vulnerability in our own lives. It, God could have built those things in us differently or exposed them differently than that, but they became the ones through whom these things have actually been expressed in us. And that is a good thing. 
what they did, not good, but this is good. You, you follow? Um, it's poor, I'm poorly communicating it. But So um, the last little piece, because we've got about a minute. The story of my friend who's, whose friend's son and has a special forces warrior is now in uh, going through, and these are the kind of things that nobody wants to talk about, right? Because they're so like loaded, especially with all the kind of language even stuff that's going on. And it's very hard to have a conversation without offending somebody. And, um, and, um, and it's like, so what do we do? And my response to it is, Love the human being. Don't, don't build a response to the presentation of someone. See, what's happening is, and this is the lion and the lamb. Jesus is, this, and Katie Skurja, who's a therapist, has really helped this because she's taken all the masculinity, femininity language, and she has put it into lion-lamb language. And because a lot of the lamb uh, language is, is quite feminine in our minds, you know? And a lot of the lion language is quite masculine in our minds. And, and so we make this divergent polarity. Part of the problem of gender confusion is that we have so created binary male-female that many people who are along that spectrum have been lost in the middle. And they have no idea how to, how to figure out who they are identity-wise because they're trying to find a basis for identity on gender, right? And, and we did that. We, we created that binary. We said, you know, I did this study. This was back in the 70s. And, and I was in charge of like 500 to 700, 20 to 30-year-olds. Only time I ever worked for a church. And I was 22. And, um, and so... Um, I did this thing, I was very curious because the issue of women had already been, uh, it had been an issue for me for, for years, and I'm 22 at that time. It was my one big initial conflict with the church. And, um, um, and so I did this thing and I, and I put out this thing. I said, look, here are all these personality, um, um, different ways to look at human personality. There was about 50 of them. And I want you to put whether this is a masculine trait, a feminine trait, or both, right? And I, what I did is, and this is the intention, I buried the fruit of the spirit inside that list. So at some point you'd run down into gentleness, right? And kindness and long suffering. And, 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 and all these kids were identifying them as, mascul and as more masculine, more feminine. Interestingly, only long-suffering in the fruit of the Spirit came out as masculine. All the rest were feminine. And, and then I had, who's the most masculine person in the Old Testament? Who's the most masculine person in the New Testament? You know, who's the most feminine woman in the Old Testament, et cetera, et cetera? I was really interested in the masculine side. It turned out to be David and Samson and Peter. It's like, what happened to Jesus? Right? And so when you talk about lion-lamb, you avoid this polarity, and you're now talking about a human being who is lion-lamb. And I said, look, what's happened is, is that this young man, everything that was a lion about him was allowed to be expressed, and everything that was a lamb about him was buried. And he so pushed it down that he's, it's killing him. And he was able to turn around and he was able to kill other people because all he was was a lion. And it's like, so now he's trying to find a way to change his presentation to be a lamb because he, he is desperate to know that that's a part of who he is that will bring some life to him. Or that's what he has seen that has brought life to him. And scripture says, in Christ there is no male or female. Gender is not an ontological identity. It's an expression of your true being, which is human. So it's like, we don't have to relate to someone's presentation. 
Because all of us, I mean, we're all in the midst of moving towards the truth of our being, our true identity, and we're all confused by what we've been molded by in terms of the world, our experience, our damage, our abuse, whatever. And so when that person comes at me, that religious person who is just wanting to tear me apart theologically, and they're coming at me, and I step inside and I hug them, which pisses them off, <laughs> right? I don't do it all the time, but when the Spirit leads, I'll sure do it. And, and I know... I know now. See, it used to be that it's my presentation versus your presentation. And when, and when you don't know who you are and that person doesn't know who you are, you're going to have a war. Right? But when you know who you are and the lion and the lamb have become expressed in you because Jesus is lion-lamb. He has the whole gamut of what it means to be human. Right? He's all the numbers of the Enneagram. Yeah? And so when he, when he dwells in me and is revealing the character and nature of God in me, Paul writes it like this. I judge no one according to the flesh. The flesh is the presentation of who you think you are. Based on what? Not based on truth. Based on hurt, damage, history, tradition, culture, whatever. And it's not that that stuff is irrelevant or even wrong. There is something beautiful about the traditions and the cultures that we come from. And we draw those, they become part of the sound that we are, but there's a lot of stuff that we drag with us that is actually flesh. It's not true. It's just a false presentation of the truth of who we are. And it's so, so how do you love someone who doesn't know who they are? How do I love myself who didn't know who I was? Judge no one. That means yourself according to your presentation. Allow the Holy Spirit to begin to teach you from the inside out the truth of who you are. And when you begin to see the truth of who you are, the way of who you are will, will match it. That will be natural expression of identity. It's just when, when you don't know who you are, that all you have is your presentation. And that's where, that's where the world is lost. It's inside their presentation. So they think that they're an American or they think that they're a Canadian, identity-wise, right? They think that they're a Baptist. They think that they're a Christian. They think that they're a Muslim. They think these are all presentations. They're not eternal. They're not identity, right? And when you begin to be freed from those things, you find yourself in a world where you begin to have eyes to see the humanity of the person, the magnificent humanity of the person that is locked inside a presentation and inside a damage, inside a hurt, inside a lies, inside of all these things. And then the Holy Spirit will grant you eyes to see the way the Holy Spirit sees so that you can love the person who is there, not react against the presentation that they present. And sometimes that presentation is so loud and strong that you need strong boundaries, right? You need to protect your children <laughs> because hurt people hurt people, right? And so, but you have an ability to be the presence of love, the presence of love in the middle of very coercive situations. So in summary, we're talking about forgiveness and reconciliation, forgiveness for the sake of the victim. Reconciliation for the sake of the perpetrator. The perpetrator has to own. Oh, the last thing about reconciliation, you have owning what you've done, confessing, telling the truth about what you've done, all right? That's part of exposure. Asking for forgiveness and changing over time. Somebody can own what they've done, ask for forgiveness, confess what they've done, but if they don't change, don't trust them. And that takes time, and it takes relationship. Stay inside the grace of the day. In terms of my friend who's got this situation relationally going on, trust the Holy Spirit. The Holy, don't be surprised if the Holy Spirit whispers, okay, here's a nudge. Why don't you give him a call? Right? I don't know. But see, that's inside the grace of the day. That might not be today, but tomorrow you'll get new grace. It might be tomorrow. I don't know, but let's stay inside today's grace.
And then let us, may we all be baptized continuously. May we be continuously being filled with the Holy Spirit so that we can see the truth of the other and not just their presentation, that we can see through how they present themselves to the truth of their being. And may we constantly, like God does, who is not unaware of all of our presentation, but is intent with love to destroy that which is not real, that which is not living, to burn away everything that is part of this tree that is alive, so that all that which is not alive is destroyed to release all that that is true, to be a continually expanding, growing, fruitful expression of truth. Amen? Okay. Amen. Can anybody say wow backwards? I'm going to ask our uh, ushers to come on up. We're going to take up our morning offering. If you're a guest, you're free to just enjoy um, this offering is to help Hope Fellowship continue to share the love of Christ where we are. So thank you for that. And then our worship team will wrap us up with a song, and then I'll have a closing sentence. So thank you. Worship team, can you start right away? Found, found on a wrapping paper in Ravensbruch, Germany, concentration camp. God, make my heart as tender as the person who was suffering who wrote these words. Here they are. Lord, remember not only the men and women of goodwill, but also those of ill will. But do not remember all the suffering they have inflicted upon us. Remember rather the fruits we brought and bore thanks to this suffering our comradeship, our loyalty, our humility, the courage, the generosity, the greatness of heart that has grown out of this. And when they come to judgment, let all the fruits we have borne be their forgiveness. Yeah, okay. All right, continue. Continue.